All right, well, please turn in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. As you're turning there, let's, let's have some fun with a little trivia, a little trivia quiz, all right? I'm going to name a few books, and what I want you to do is give me who those books are about. I'm going to give you a title, and I want you to tell me who it's about, okay? Let's start out with an easy one. The Autobiography, this is the title of the book, The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. What do you think? Benjamin Franklin is right. Somebody whispered it. I know you were nervous to answer because you didn't know if you're going to get it or not. But whoever was brave there, you got it. Benjamin Franklin. Okay, this one's a little harder. Biography. It's a biography. The title of the biography is Lincoln. Okay, now let's, let's, this is harder, so let's make this multiple choice, okay? Option 1A. The American Revolutionary War General, Benjamin Lincoln. B, Christian recording artist, Lincoln Brewster. Or C, the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. What do you think? C is right. Man, you guys are smart. All right. That was the warm-up round. That was the warm-up round. Let's get a little harder, okay? So we're going to move to novels or a series of novels, okay? The Chronicles of Narnia. Who are the Chronicles of Narnia about? Uh, how about those children, right? Peter, Edmund, Susan, Lucy, the Pivenzies, right? But who who is the star of the Chronicles of Narnia? I think it's Aslan. That's right. Remember, he is not a tame lion. We wouldn't call him safe, but he's good. I wonder who he's supposed to represent. Hmm. He created Narnia. He gave himself his life to redeem the one who was in bondage because of his... Be- I, I wonder who that is. Okay. Oh, by the way, I have in my hand the entire series of the Chronicles of Narnia from our church library, okay? This is borrowable, borrowable stuff right here. I held it up just to make you go, ooh, I want that. Okay. And then the Lord of the Rings. In my right hand, the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit and all three in the Lord of the Rings trilogy... Did you know that J.R.R. Tolkien, he intended for the three books to be one, one volume? That would have been a tough, tough book to paperback, wouldn't it? But the Lord of the Rings, who's, what's, who's in the Lord of the Rings? You got Frodo, right? Maybe think of Samwise Gamgee, Gandalf, maybe Aragorn. Of course, we remember Gollum or Smeagol. He's in there. These are available to you if you want them later. Don't get them now because they're up here. I'm going to grunt and grunt while I get back up. Okay, last book for our quiz. You ready? The Bible. The Bible. Who is the Bible about? And sometimes we can get tripped up with this question. After all, uh, the last several messages in our series as we've been working through Matthew 5 have been all about who Christians are. Christians are poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They're meek. Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful, pure in heart. Christians are peacemakers, and they're persecuted. We were also reminded last week that Christians are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Remember, those those are not things that we just strive to become. They are things that we are. We are made that and those things by the grace of God. 
after this message today, as we move forward in the Sermon on the Mount, the next several weeks, we're going to learn from Jesus' teaching on how we are to live. Jesus is going to teach us how we are to live. How do we pursue righteousness? And so we read through these passages and we see ourselves and, and who we're becoming described in these verses. And we start to get the idea that the Bible is all about, well, me. It's about me. It's about you. We might say the Bible is God's instruction manual for life. And in a lot of ways it is. But if you take that too far, we think it's all about how I ought to be and how I ought to act. It's all about me. Some call the Bible God's love letter to man. And in a way it is for sure. But if you go too far with that, it's all about me. God's love is fulfilled in loving me. The Bible's about me. It teaches me how to live. It answers my questions. It shows how much God loves me. It says that Jesus died for me. It reminds me how to be content and joyful. It tells me how I can know that I'm going to heaven, that I'm not going to hell. The Bible's all about me, right? And then a passage like Matthew 5, 17 through 20 comes along to set things right. Uh, In short, All the Old Testament, and Jesus says this in this passage, all the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, all the Bible is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has and will fulfill. He will accomplish everything prophesied throughout the Old and throughout the New Testaments. Even think about this, even when the church is complete, uh, when the church is perfected, she is presented to Jesus Christ. Jesus is all in all. Uh, The Bible is certainly great news. It is great news for me. It is great news for you. And it's great news because Christ is the fulfillment. Uh, We've already fallen short. If the Bible is all about us, we're in trouble. It's when people start to think that it's all about us. Uh, when it, sometimes ever so subtle, it's so easy to make this switch. But it's a foundational shift that takes place as we look at the scripture. And if people start to think that the chief end of God is to glorify and enjoy man, things go very, very badly. So badly that people will even miss who Jesus really is and miss the rescue, the salvation that he's provided. Even when they've given their whole lives to reading, studying, maybe even teaching the Bible. As we work through this passage today, I hope that you'll see why it is so important to remember that the word of God points us to Jesus. Verse 17. Verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, When Jesus says the law or the prophets, he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament here. Uh, When they spoke of the law, the law itself, that that could refer to uh, maybe the Ten Commandments, to all the commandments in the law from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It could refer to the first five books of the Bible. So throw Genesis in there as well with those other four. 
When they say the law, they could mean any of those things. And the way that you would tell, you would need the context. So you would hear that person talking to you about certain things and talk about the law, and you would know what they were getting at. But when you add in the prophets, as in the law and the prophets, or the law or the prophets, when both are mentioned, that would always mean the entirety of the Old Testament. Or to the Jews at the time of Jesus' ministry, that's the whole Bible for them up to that point. They weren't reading the book of Matthew yet. It wasn't written. So Jesus has started his teaching and preaching ministry, calling on people to repent, uh, gathering those who would follow him. And he's preaching this, this sermon, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. And he's already contradicted the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. Mourning, meekness, poverty of spirit, These were not things the Pharisees exemplified. Uh, If anything, they would exemplify more of a, you know what, you should mourn because you're not more like me, kind of a spirit. The word Pharisee itself means separatist or separation. They had separated themselves out through their religious actions. They they were viewed as superior to everyone else because of how, uh, how many rules they had followed. Some of them in scripture and some of them added to, right? Uh, it's good to I have the idea of being separated. We are separated unto God, sanctified to him in Christ. But when we start to make separation, how much better we are than everybody else because we've kept these new rules we've made up, well, that's a problem. Uh, the scribes, they were copiers and experts. They Remember, they didn't have the Xerox. They weren't just making copies of the Bible. They were writing these things out by hand. And they were specializing in, in the law and in the prophets, the whole Old Testament. Some of the scribes specialized in the law specifically for actual legal purposes. We would think of them like a lawyer today. Others for religious purposes. Uh, but all these scribes, all these Pharisees, they'd read and studied and taught the Old Testament. And they were proud to be God's chosen people. And they wanted to be like Abraham, like Moses. Those guys were heroes. So all these specialists, they needed to make sure that they were keeping all these rules to rise above the rest. And they wrote other works in order to help them to do that. Ways of clarifying certain rules, certain procedures. They needed ways of making sure that that you could be, uh, for instance, ceremonially cleansed enough to be considered holy. God says, be holy for I am holy. So, well, you got to do this and this and this and this. And if you wash in this way and wash in that way, and you better make sure you do it extra so that you're more washed than other people are washed. And if you do all those things, now you're holy. That kind of a mentality. And because these guys were so, we may say, quote unquote, awesome. Since these guys were so awesome, because they were carrying on these rules and traditions, they expected everyone else to keep all these new rules that they and their ancestors had written uh, just as much as the actual law, the actual word of God. And if you couldn't keep them, if you couldn't keep all those rules, well, what's your problem? Too bad for you, you heathen. Uh, We're keeping all of them, so I don't know what your problem is. Why can't you? I guess you're not as godly as us. You see? Uh, This is legalism. This is legalism. If Moses is your hero, if you want to be just like David, you might even dare to be a Daniel. 
And, and listen, those guys did some great things by the grace of God, didn't they? And there are ways that we could look at their life and go, boy, I, I would love to be used by God in that way. But they're not our heroes. If we go too far down that path, forgetting that any of the good that came out of those men was because they had put their faith in their gracious God who had promised them a coming Messiah. If we totally missed the point and forgot that they and we need a Savior, what you come out with is a list of do's and don'ts. And if you think you're able to keep them, you also come out with an arrogant attitude because you think you're doing a great job. And boy, God is going to pat you on the back when you arrive at your rightful destination, heaven. Or, if you're not up to those standards, if you're not up to those standards that have been written and passed down to you, you might just feel hopeless, disgusted, saddened, and destined for hell. In short, in, the, in this pharisaical mindset, if, if Abraham or Moses or David, if those guys are your heroes, leaving grace out of it altogether, it may not be very long if you're able to keep the rules, you become your hero. And everyone who doesn't agree with you or keep all the rules that you decided are the essentials, it starts to feel like and look like from your perspective that they're beneath you. So that's the scene. That's the scene in the religious environment of Jesus' day. And that's the scene, remembering this, that Israel is a nation, part of their governmental way of doing things were with these Pharisees. These scribes were lawyers. So this is their government. This is their culture. This is their environment. And it's their religion. This is the scene. And then enters Jesus Christ, who preaches grace, repentance, and the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. Who even, Jesus has the gumption to speak as though he is the authority. Even though he eats with sinners. And doesn't keep all the rules that we've come up with to help us be so spiritually. So spiritual. And then what it might look like is that this Jesus guy has swooped in. And man, he has gone soft. This Jesus guy has gone soft. He's removing expectations. He's buddying up with the sinners. He's missing how amazing we are. He's not even trying to be like us. He doesn't even seem like he wants to learn anything from us. What does he think he's doing? Who does he think he is? Does he think he could just come and abolish the law like that? They would have felt like Jesus was abolishing the law. When in fact... They had been defiling it by adding to it and taking away from it, having forgotten the matters of the heart. Jesus wasn't being soft at all. He was calling out false doctrine, and not just from anybody, the people who were in charge. He was calling out false doctrine. And Jesus wasn't abolishing the law. He, he kept it perfectly. He is completely righteous without any sin. He is our hero and our spotless sacrificial lamb. He is a suitable sacrifice to die in our place at the cross, paying the penalty for our failure 
to uphold God's standard of righteousness. So Jesus fulfilled the law in obedience. And he didn't just fulfill the law by living a righteous life. He also fulfilled the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, by being. Jesus is the culmination of everything to which it pointed. Does that make sense from both of those perspectives? He fulfilled it by completely obeying it from that mindset. But he also is the fulfillment of all of it. When Jesus came, everything that the law pointed to and the prophets pointed to, he is. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Who's the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent? Genesis 3, it's Jesus Christ. Who's the seed of Abraham through whom the nations of the earth would be blessed? Well, Jesus. Who's the prophet who was to come who would be like Moses and speak the words of God to his people? Jesus. Who is the Passover lamb, the sin offering? Who is the high priest? And all of the pictures that we see through the temple worship as God commanded. All of that points to Jesus. Who is the king in David's line who will sit on the throne forever? It's Jesus. Who is the one who would fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 22 without fail? It's Christ. Who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? upon whom our transgressions were laid. It's Jesus. And on and on and on we could go. As Jesus did himself with the two disciples. Remember on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, it says he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. In the kingdom of heaven. Now the easy part of these verses to explain is the part about the iota or the dot. So we'll tackle that first, okay? Maybe you've heard of this before, but the words iota and dot are just a decent English translation of the Greek that was written. This book, remember, originally written in in Koine Greek, and, and that even Jesus wasn't speaking Greek when he said these things. He's speaking Aramaic, which comes from Hebrew, So what in the world is this? And the iota is referring to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it looks exactly like an apostrophe. So it's just a little tiny letter. Not one apostrophe looking letter is missing. The dot is referring to a part of a letter that changed the pronunciation. So maybe for like a halfway decent example, if you think of the letter N in handwriting, there's that You go down first, I'm going to do it your way. You go down and then the hump and right, that's an N. But if you make that stick go higher, it turns into an H. And that's going to change how you say the word you see, right? There's a word in the Hebrew alphabet, or a letter, I'm sorry, in the Hebrew alphabet that would make the H sound. And there's a part where there's a line that comes down like this, and then there's a line next to it, but these don't connect. And if you don't connect them, it sounds like... H. If you do connect them, 
it turns into that wonderful Hebrew sound that we're so glad is not in the English language, the sound. That's the dot. That's what he's talking about. So instead of saying hesed, a, a wonderful Hebrew word that means the a covenant faithfulness of God, chesed. That little extra bit of ink there makes all the difference in the pronunciation. But this is a figure of speech, too. You realize that, right? At the end of the day, this is being used like our figure of speech when we say we're going to cross every T and dot every I. So Jesus is saying, take all the promises of God's word, and heaven and earth will pass away. God's word will stand, and he will fulfill all of it, everything. Every T will be crossed, every I will be dotted, all things finding their fulfillment in Christ. Jesus will accomplish all the written word of God. It's also important to note here that in these verses, Jesus has just affirmed the authority and the infallibility, the inerrancy of the Old Testament. If we were to ask, we think about the Old Testament, we think, is the book of Esther even supposed to be in the Bible? What did Jesus just say? Yep, he just said, that's the word of God. Should Genesis 7 have told us that that flood was actually regional and not global? Well, what did Jesus just say? Did God really allow all those miracles through Elijah and Elisha? Did that stuff happen? Daniel's prophecies about those 70 weeks, is that legit? Is that even accurate? Is God really going to bring his people to life? Is there going to be a resurrection? Will God give a new heart, a new spirit, a new covenant to his people from all over the earth? Jesus, God the Son, just said, everything you see in the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, has happened, is happening, will happen. It is the very word of God. And he is going to see it through to the very end. And it all points back to him. So those are the easy parts, okay? Easy parts as far as understanding the concepts, uh, but let's don't let the ease of understanding make us appreciate it any less. The, the easier part to understanding in these verses perhaps is the more glorious of this uh, content. But, but now for the harder part. When Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, does that mean that we're supposed to keep all the law still? If so, uh-oh, right? <laughs> Stink. <laughs> if we're supposed to keep the whole law all the way through, is that what he means? And the answer is kind of yes and no. First, let me point out that Jesus, he's about to do a bunch of teaching. As we move forward in Matthew 5, he's going to do a lot of teaching on moral righteousness uh, from the heart and in our actions. Uh, the Pharisees and scribes had skipped the parts about anger and lust, even the true purpose and meaning of faithfulness in marriage, as we'll see in the next few weeks. So we could say it this way. In these verses, what Jesus is declaring after having taught the Beatitudes, after teaching about salt and light, prior to teaching in the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is declaring that everything that he's teaching is in accord, in agreement with the law. Everything he's teaching is in agreement with the rest of Scripture. And what he's teaching contradicts the scribes and the Pharisees' teaching. 
So who's loosening the requirements? It's the scribes and the Pharisees. They are loosening the requirements because they're only focusing on the outward appearance. They're focusing on the praise of man, not being obedient from the heart, not being obedient in humility and sincerity. Okay? So in making obedience what they might think harder, looking more and more righteous, more and more spiritual as they follow more and more rules, making obedience harder in the eyes of man, they've actually made it easier by making it simply a ritualistic practice. It was self-righteousness. Not love of God, not love of neighbor. So which one's actually easier for the sinner to accomplish? So the first part, and the bigger idea we need to keep in mind is that. Uh, Jesus is saying, I am, I am teaching the law as I move forward here. But then there's the other question. What about keeping all of the law? What about keeping all of the law today in our time? Why do we or don't we have to keep all of that stuff? And it's helpful to know that the Old Testament law was broken up into three categories. When we look at the law, there are three types of laws. The moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. First, the moral law. This includes things like, uh, of course, loving God and loving your neighbor. Or how about commands like, honor your mother and father. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, stuff like that. Uh, These are laws that are written on the hearts of all mankind. Uh, Seeing God's eternal power and divine nature revealed in creation. Romans 1. Knowing that we ought not have any other gods before him, even ourselves, so that all are without excuse. All of these kinds of things would be considered moral law, and they are applicable to all, and of course, tied to the very nature of the righteousness of God. So we keep those things still today. The second category would be judicial law. And we need to remember here that Israel was an actual nation, a country. And we say First Baptist Church, the First Baptist Church is a local church. We are not a country, right? Israel is a country. And just like the USA has a constitution and laws, Israel had laws. And we read those laws in the very pages of the Old Testament. And they were written by their rightful, sovereign king. Israel's a theocracy. Their king is the Lord. And yet, when Pilate called Jesus their king, the Pharisees cried out, We have no king but Caesar. In Matthew 21, Jesus reminded them of the scripture, Psalm 118. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Knowing that he, Christ, the cornerstone, and the fulfillment of that prophecy, knowing that, he told them, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, Peter writes this to the church. says this in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, verse 7 says, The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and here comes that line, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. You mean I'm not as good as I think I am? How dare you? The stone of offense. Because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. Remember, God's people are from all over the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So it's not saying only one race is the church. It's saying you are being made a people from all over the world. The people of God. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That's for the church. And so we see that when Jesus died on the cross, Israel had rejected her king. Israel rejected its Messiah and died as a nation. They would be officially, officially in the history book kind of a way, destroyed in AD 70 by Rome. But the church had already begun, was growing, spreading before then. If there is no nation, there is no judicial law to follow. Does that make sense? The third category of the law is the ceremonial law. And this would have to do with the rules and requirements specifically for worship for worship in the temple. How to order everything, what sacrifices were acceptable, what they needed to look like, how to prepare them, all of that stuff. Who was allowed to do what in each stage, all of those things, the ceremonial law. And if you remember, what happened specifically for us, just kind of like say this example and it all makes sense, right? What happened to that curtain that separated everything else from the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, when Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, was sacrificed for our sin. When Christ died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. So to sacrifice, let's say this spring we have a Good Friday service and we celebrate the death of our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. And then we go ahead and go get a sacrificial lamb and make a temple and make a holy of holies and slaughter the lamb and sprinkle its blood and we do all that kind of stuff because, you know, we're supposed to do that still. If we did that, what would we be saying about Christ's death? We're saying it's not enough. It wasn't sufficient. Jesus didn't fulfill everything. That would be a terribly wrong thing to do. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant, it is finished once and for all. So when the temple was destroyed also in AD 70, it didn't need to be rebuilt. It didn't need to be restored. Christ had entered the true holy of holies once and for all. The blood of the lamb has been accepted for our total cleansing. So the ceremonial law, we don't keep the old ceremonial law anymore because the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ Everything that the ceremonial law pointed to has been completed. It's done. Okay? So, we could say it this way. 
I am breaking the ceremonial law if I reject Jesus as my sacrificial lamb and think I need to go get another one. If I make that choice, I've broken the ceremonial law. Does that make sense? So I hope that helps you understand why we don't have to keep all those aspects as they are written for that day in our day and age. We know right from wrong, and we strive to follow Christ and righteousness today. And though we are Abraham's children by faith, we are not actively living right now as the nation of Israel. We are the church. And specifically, our local church, remember if I get this correctly, we are a local church in the state of Michigan in the United States of America. We do not follow the laws of the nation of Israel. We do obey our king. Right? But if you get pulled over by the police officer today, you don't say, well, my king didn't say the speed limit was 25 on this road. That wouldn't work very well for you. Actually, your king said obey that law. That's what he said. Right? But we are not in the nation of Israel. And because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness and fulfilled once and for all every purpose of the forms, the pictures that the temple presented, provided, there is no need for further adherence to the old ceremonial law of the Old Testament Israel. All that being said, even if there was only one rule to follow, we would need Christ to save us. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees They thought and and they were treated like there was no way to be any better than them. Evidently, there was an old saying in Israel back then. This is how that saying went. If only two people get into heaven, it will be a scribe and a Pharisee. Can you imagine that as being a, a figure of speech? But every one of them, those scribes and Pharisees, fell short. Way short. Every one of us falls way short. The law and the prophets were not given to us to tell us how good we are. They were not given to tell us how good we needed to be in order to earn a spot in heaven. They were given to us to point us to our only hope of rescue. We read the law and we see our inability. It teaches us our desperate and hopeless condition. In Romans 3.20, Paul writes, the law makes us aware of our sin. In Galatians 4, he calls it our guardian or our schoolmaster. The point is that we reread the word of God and we see the holiness of God. We see his righteous demand and we know we're guilty. So then how do we achieve this righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? And the answer is not just to not be legalistic. I say, well, those guys were super legalistic, so I'm not going to be legalistic, and that makes me better than them. Being legalistic is bad. Don't be legalistic, and you'll be more righteous. Well, guess what I just did? I just wrote a new law. I just made up a new rule. And I will love my new rule. (laughs) I will love it. I will name it, whatever, right? And I will never show any outward or judgmental responses. I will call everyone wonderful and just affirm, affirm, affirm. Unless, of course, you disobey my rule. Well, then all bets are off and I'm going to have to tear you down. And that super righteous living will earn me a spot in heaven? 
No. No. That's just a new version of the same sinful, self-centered, self-focused legalism. And boy, we can come up with any kind of variety we want to. Here's the truth of the matter. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even if today is the first time you've ever heard that, that was not me telling you to be perfect from here on out. You Now you know that, so be great from here on out and you'll be good. No, no, no. That's God, God's word telling us we're already guilty. We're already guilty. There is only one whose righteousness is truly, entirely righteous. There's only one who did not deserve punishment, who did not deserve judgment for any sin. And he, Jesus Christ, willingly gave himself to die in our place, to suffer the wrath that we deserve. And his righteousness has been given to us. His righteousness given to us, put to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our rescuer, our savior. Jesus is our sanctifier as we look to him. Jesus is our greatest prize, our eternal reward. When we read the Bible, we learn that Jesus is our hero. So I don't want the Bible to be all about me. If it was, it would never have a happy ending. Because I needed saving. We need saving. I don't just need motivation to find it within myself to be better. I need saved. By the grace of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, all of God's promises find their yes, their amen in him, in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament In the Old Testament, God's promises are made. And our hearts and our record of sin is revealed. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, which is purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, with his blood, God's promises are kept and secured for all eternity. So I'm not the star of the Bible. I'm not the main character. It's not about me. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. May it be marvelous in our eyes. Because if it is, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus' perfect sacrifice for your sin at the cross, then his righteousness is now yours. You are freed from your bondage to sin and now able to pursue righteousness from the heart. And yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, these important truths. Lord, we acknowledge that it is such a subtle, seemingly such a subtle transition to where we start to flip things and think that
This is all about us. And God, I pray that we would regard you as we ought, that we would fear you, that we would desire to follow hard after you, be pleasing to you, glorify you, enjoy you in our lives. And God, we thank you for this too. You are the almighty, sovereign, eternal, everywhere present God. And even though the Bible is all about you, even though the Bible points us to Jesus, it does so because, as well, you love us. You have chosen to show us mercy. You have chosen to give, us, to give us grace, give us salvation. God, we thank you that you love us. And pray, Lord, that in knowing those things, we would understand that all of that praise and all of that glory goes back to you. That our life is from you. God, may these truths stir up in our hearts a great love, a great affection, a great desire to be your people that you have, that you are creating for your glory. God, use us in this way today and in this week. May we truly honor you in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.